Okay, yeah, we continue our study in the book of Isaiah, written approximately 730 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. Really focuses on the northern uh, Israel, what they call the north, or the, uh, called Israel. They'll often, sometimes they'll use Ephraim, but they'll usually say Israel and then the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah. And of course, that's where Jerusalem is. There's two tribes down there, uh, Benjamin and Judah. And the deal being here is the prophet Isaiah is coming, and he's, he's, he's a typical Old Testament prophet. He's, he has a message of repentance, uh, that the people might come to the Lord, because there's an impending doom that's coming on the northern kingdom with the Assyrians are coming down now, and they're going to be taken captive. And then about 130 years later, the Babylonians will come down to the southern kingdom, capture it, that's Nebuchadnezzar, destroy the temple. And so Isaiah is very much, uh, in his warnings and these dire uh, predictions and prophecies, there's always this threat of hope that God is still has a plan, there's going to be a remnant, there's a coming king, you know, all these kind of uh, hopeful messages. There's always light, so to speak, in the darkness. And that's where we left it last week uh, with chapter 8, just down to the last verse almost, where it says in verse 19, And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, uh, should, they, should not a people then seek their God? Uh, should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? What's he talking about here in verse 19, chapter 8? What is he saying? What are the people doing uh, that's really... Uh, an abomination to the Lord. I mean, it's strictly forbidden by the Lord. They're doing something in particular. Yeah, they're, they're going into the occultic practices, medium, divination, soothsayers, uh, witches. Think of Saul with the Witch of Endor kind of a thing going on. And this is strictly forbidden in the scriptures. Actually, in chapter 2, he speaks about this too. Uh, when he says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6, For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They, they, are, they are soothsayers, like the Philistines. You see this constant warning that because they're leaving the true God and his word, something's going to fill that vacuum. You know, man is essentially spiritual. You know, man is made in the image of God, even though we're separated and fallen. He has these... He wants to know about the spiritual. He wants to, he understands there's a supernatural. That's been through all through human history. I mean, you go back to the time of uh, Moses confronting Pharaoh when he lays down the serpent. What is, remember, Pharaoh calls the, his two magicians, Jim. What do they do? They do the same thing. Howbeit, Moses' staff that's turned into a snake will, will eat theirs, but they will actually stay with Moses on two of those plagues. Those miracles. They, now, how they did it is another uh, story. I'm just saying, man has always sought uh, power, and that's why they go into the occultic uh, to know the future, to have power over people, etc., etc., etc. And so, if you turn, if you keep your place here, but if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, and maybe somebody could read this if they would like, just read it loud. But if you look at uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 uh, through 12, those three verses. Deuteronomy 18, I'll put this on the board. Deuteronomy 18, 
whoever has that, they would read that loudly. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you will not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a media or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For all, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Thank you, Steve. So here we see the people are moving into darkness. Once you move away from the Lord and his word, of course, God's word is light. We'll see that in a moment. You move into this realm of darkness. And do you think that is going on today? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I, you just think of in the recent past five years, I think they have... Uh, you know, some of these guys that come on that are channelers, they have necromancy, they have astrologers. All of this stuff is ancient. Do you understand? It's, it's just repackaged. You know, Solomon, Ecclesiastes say there's nothing new under the sun. So too, these practices. But man has an inclination to go this direction. And we saw this big time uh, when we lived in uh, Asia because of their really into the supernatural, into the spirit world. And I was amazed on a recent trip to uh, Israel, the number of gift shops, maybe you guys remember this, that had the hand of Fatima, which is a, which is a hand like this. It's like they put on their houses, and it has a blue stone here often to ward off evil spirits. And they go, well, that's just tradition. But it, it's just interesting how these things kind of get in uh, to people's belief systems. Any thought on this? But, but this is what Isaiah is saying. Look, you're, you're not only forgetting and and leaving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you're going into this whole other direction over here. You know, once the word, if you study it historically, once the word of God goes low, the flame gets low, like in the dark ages of the middle, something's gonna fill that. And that's why you see superstitions tend to rise at this time of the year. Uh, we won't get into it in high detail, but parts of Eastern, uh, Western Europe, uh, France, Spain, etc., that are moving away from a Christian base there's a lot of superstition over there. I don't know how many have traveled to that regions, but people that come back tell me there's a lot of this uh, belief in uh, superstition, occultic practices, and, you know. So uh, that's back here to Isaiah. That's what he's saying here. Then he says in verse 20 of chapter 8, to the law and to the testimony. That's the word of God. He says, to the law and testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because Why? There is no light in them. That's an important point. See, the word of God, uh, it says in Psalm 119, verse 130, the entrance of your word gives light. The Bible says, thy word is a light unto my path, a lamp to my way. You see, it's a, it's, it gives light. Truth is light. And so he's saying here, why don't they want to listen to God's word? Why, what is he saying in that verse? Why don't they want to? Because there is no light in them. They have no desire for it. They're spiritually darkness, so they don't have any uh, interest or hunger uh, for the word of God. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, sanctify them by the truth, and then he says what? Thy word is truth. 
good. Did you hear that? Thy word is truth. How are we sanctified? By the word of God and obeying the word of God thereof. You see, it's, it's, and, and if people don't have that in them, remember the, when the sower goes out in the parable, famous parable of the seed and the sower? Well, the seed is the word of God, but sometimes it lands on hard ground and it can't, it can't penetrate. It can't take root there. That's like people that hear the word of God, hear the word of God, hear the word of God, but it doesn't penetrate. Any thought on this, Joseph? These ancient, what he's talking about here, 2000, almost 3,000 years ago, has application to our lives today. It just does. You have to have this, this hunger, as Peter says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. That, that, that indicates some type of spiritual growth. But I'll quote here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is made clear where it says, um, okay, in verse 13, I mean, uh, I'll write this down. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. It says this. Um, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but by the Holy Spirit teaches us, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's kind of like what we're doing this morning, or a sermon, or in your, you're comparing spiritual with spiritual. What does the Old Testament say? What's the New Testament? What application does that have? But it says this, verse 14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what to him? Foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, uh, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. In other words, he's saying here, the natural man that does not have the Holy Spirit has no interest in the things of God. He can't understand the, the, the Word of God. He can't. Matter of fact, the Word of God to him is what? In popular culture today, you think the Word of God and the things of God are foolishness? A joke? Yeah. It, it, it's very... You know, but for those who are born again, who have that spiritual hunger, the word of God is life and it's nourishment. It's a compass. It's a, it's a, it's a sword. It's a lamp. Fill in the blank. You see. But again, what's going on back there at the time of Isaiah has application in our lives today. Somebody have their hand up. Any thoughts on this? It's really important how he's layering this in here. Okay, uh, my friend as well said the Bible is the only book you have to know the author to understand the message. You know, you gotta, you know, it's a little like a sundial. You know, actually a sundial in bright, in, in sunlit countries, you know, like the tropics, it's actually fairly accurate. But if you have a sundial in here and you're dependent on this uh, artificial light, is it very accurate? No, it's gotta be out in the sunlight. So too with the word of God, we know it's accurate, it's true, but it has to be in the sunlight. It has to have that spirit of God. It can't be artificially infused. Okay, we'll go back to Isaiah here. And then he says, chapter eight, they're not interested in the word of God, not interested. Then it says in verse 21, they will pass through it hard pressed. This is this coming tr- trouble and this invasion that's coming and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse who? Their king and their God. Very similar with the Israelites when they came out of, out of Egypt. When things got difficult, who do they blame? Moses and, in a sense, God. 
you know, why did you bring us out here? We had it so good in Egypt, you know. We had the onions, we had the garlic. Yeah, what about the whip and the stones and, the, you, know, you know, they forget all that. But they complain, and it says, then they will look to the earth. See, they, they raise their fists towards heaven, but then they look to the earth and see trouble and darkness. This whole idea of darkness, anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. So this chapter closes with this gloomy kind of picture, darkness, shadow, gloominess, and now it's going to open up in chapter 9. And remember, there's no chapter break when this scroll was written. I mean, it was literally, the scroll just continues. Matter of fact, if you go to uh, Jerusalem today in the, in, the, in the museum of the scroll, they actually have the Isaiah unfurled. I think it's 24 feet long. And just like that, you can see it's a continuous kind of a message. But it says, now the light comes, so to speak. Verse chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. There's, and when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee the Gentiles. The, very important point. The people who walked in darkness, remember the darkness from chapter 8, have seen what? Not just a light, but a great light. Okay, those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now, let's look at this in context here. Okay, here, here's the, the distribution of the 12 tribes of Israel. Here's, here's, down here, of course, is Judah, Jerusalem. That's what we call the southern kingdom. Up here, the northern kingdom. Now... The, the, the tribe that was allocated alongside the Galilee here, where Jesus' ministry predominantly is occupied, is the region of Naphtali. It's like Rocky River, Westlake, we're all in Cuyahoga County. You understand? It's kind of like that kind of a deal. So, and here is Zebulon. But it's saying this region here is going to see not just the light one day, but what? A great light. It's actually messianic. It's, it's a prediction. The, the, here's where he's going to come from, this region. Now, uh, over here, on the, there's the Jordan River here, is what we call uh, oftentimes the uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, or the Gentiles, that's where the Greeks and the Romans would establish their cities on that side, was the Gentile side. I'll show you another shot of this. Uh, here, here is, of course, where Jesus' ministry predominantly is in this region. He's raised and born in Bethlehem down here, raised in Nazareth, but we're going to see in a moment, he will go up north and he'll make Capernaum his ministry headquarters. That's where he really operates out of, if you will. But over here again, Decapolis means what from the Latin word? Ten, ten cities. Ten, and again, that has that Gentile flavor to it. So over here, and now here this great light is going to emerge in this region right here. It's a, it's a really a beautiful, uh, uh, hopeful uh, prophecy of this coming great light for people that have been sitting in darkness. Any thoughts on that? Do you, do you understand how he's pulling up and how when it comes to the time of Jesus, it is extremely powerful, powerful. Because you keep a place here and then just turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. I'll show you how this works out. Matthew chapter 4.
Okay, now, Matthew chapter 4, this is Jesus, he, he has come out of the wilderness temptation, you know, of course he's been baptized by John, and then it says in verse 12, this is uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. I'll put this up. I'm trying to make sure I don't go too quick and give you verses out of that. Now, okay, it says here, Now when Jesus heard that John, this is John the Baptist, had been in, put in prison, he departed uh, to the Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came to and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. They call Galilee a sea in the scripture. Anyhow, it's a lake. Uh, in the regions of uh, Zebulon. Um, Maybe we should call Lake Erie a sea. No, we won't. Okay. Uh, in the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land is Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. And there Jesus will inaugurate his ministry. And he starts out, verse 17, from that time Jesus began preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a very natural uh, Old Testament prophetic proclamation, repentance. That's, that's key. And of course, Jesus is now introducing the kingdom. But do you see where it's located here? It's right spot on. I mean, you have to appreciate the intricacy of prophetic fulfillment. Uh, you know, that's why men couldn't have conspired to put this book together. You know what I'm saying? Once you start investigating uh, to see how this great light has come. Now, we know that light, when it's attributed to a person, that's God. Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my refuge and my light. And so when Jesus ascribes this to himself in John chapter 8 and 9, when he says, I am the light of the world, that's hearkening back to these declarations in the Old Testament that God is light. Does that make sense? It's just, it's very powerful uh, when you see how this, but when he comes, he's going to come to this region, people are going to be in darkness, uh, don't forget, this is where when the Assyrians come down, they're going to oppress the people. The northern kingdom always tended to get hammered. Uh, this is where the Romans often would occupy up in this region and keep the people under their heel. You know, it is, it is a very rough situation. But this is where the great light would come, and people that sat in darkness, the shadow of death, and the Gentiles. This, the, all through Isaiah, you get this idea that this message, this hopeful message, is not just meant for the Jews alone. You always see this idea of Gentiles, the nations. Uh, it's, it's bigger than just this. You know, it's bigger. And let, me, let me show you how this actually works itself out in the Gospels. If you turn to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, um, this is when Jesus is over here. He's on this side of the Galilee, ministry, involved in ministry, right? Right over here. And he says in chapter 4, verse 35, um, 
He said, let's cross over to the other side, over here. Now, and when he left the multitude, uh, they took him in the boat, and he was, at a great windstorm comes, and the seas beat, and all this, we know he's asleep in the boat, and their, their apostles are just beside themselves. Then they say in verse 38, Rabbi, do you not care that we are perishing? One person that ever walked this planet you should not say that to is our Lord. I mean, he came to this world because he did care if we were perishing and he wants to rescue us. But it says here, he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Not just a calm, but a great calm. Okay? And it shows Jesus' power over the elements, over nature, if you will. Now remember, when Jesus comes, the first thing he's doing, he's proclaiming kingdom. That's kingdom language. When he says, uh, repent and prepare for the kingdom. Or he says to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't have the kingdom. He is a king coming, proclaiming kingdom uh, wisdom or a proclamation. He was born a king. Gentiles hailed him as a king at his birth when the kings of the, the wise men came from the east. He died a king. When Pilate says, write what on his ascription, what on the cross? King of the Jews. You know, he might not even know what he was saying, but Jesus was born a king, he dies a king, he is a king. But when he walked this earth, he's displaying kingly authority. Kingly authority over what? That's a question, because I need a drink of water. Kingly authority, beautiful segue. What did he have, what was he displaying in his three-year earthly ministry that he had kingly authority over? Creation, the wind, the waves, what else? Illness, leprosy, blindness. We're going to see that in Isaiah when it talks about he'll open the blind's eye, the deaf will hear. What else? Demonic. How about power over the demonic? Even the apostles, when they came back after their preaching tour, and they go, even the demons are subject to your name. That is powerful. We'll talk about this later as we get into the book of Isaiah. What else? Demons, what else? Death. I mean, we're going to be celebrating Easter in a week. Jesus says, I have the power to lay my life down and to take it up again. That's powerful. How about the power over sin, to forgive sin? You see, how about the power over the word of God? When he says, Moses said unto you, but I say, that's, in that context, that's extremely powerful. We may not get it. But they knew God spoke to Moses. But what he says, Moses said unto you, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, if you say in your heart, thou rock out or my brother or I hate my neighbor. He says, it's like you committed murder in your heart. You see, so what I'm getting at, he, when he walks, he's talking, he's a king. Does, does that make sense? <laughs> he's displaying kingly. He's introducing the kingdom to us. How, how be it? In, in, a, in a shortened format, and that's going to tell us what's coming in future days when he returns as the true king of kings, lord of lords. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Any thoughts on this? It's like, kind of, yes, please, Joyce. Yeah, exactly right. You know, and, and not only that, he has the power to say he's fulfilling scripture. You know, you're not going to get another man 
that's going to say, uh, you know, I'm the light of the world. Or you'll see me coming back in clouds of glory to judge the earth. You're not going to get, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, ever making that kind of promise. Yeah, he's eternal. Man cannot. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's what we catch in the Gospels is the majesty or the we see it fully, kind of like a painting. Though all four of the Gospels paint this picture, each one showing a different aspect, but it's displaying who Jesus is. That's a good point. Anyone else? Somebody else had their hand. Okay, uh, so he 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 shows that. And he, gets, he says we're going to go to the other side, so they should have took him at his word. They're going to get to the other side. And then he says to them, why are you fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Again, this display of deity. Now, look at this. We won't go into the whole thing, but I just want to look at this. Then they came to the other side of the sea in the, in the country of the Gadarenes, over here. Now, we, we have good belief the other side is the region of the Gentiles. One reason is they're raising all these pigs. When archaeologists go to a little town or a little village in Israel today, they can often find out if it was Gentile or predominantly Jewish because when they dig these fire pits and they find these places where, there's a, where they have food preparation, you know, if they find pig bones, that often is a good indication uh, that it was a Gentile. I mean, when you go to Israel today, you, what don't you get for breakfast? Bacon, sausage. You don't get it, okay? You're just not going to get it even to this day. Yeah. I always say I have a hard time being part of a religion that doesn't let you eat bacon or sausage. Anyhow, but it's that idea that this, this is pretty strict, and it's a good indication that they're over here, up in this region of the Gentile. And don't forget, this light is not just meant for the Jews, but it's a light unto the Gentile, Galilee of the Gentiles. So he comes and he finds this guy in a tomb. Okay, he comes out of the tomb, it says in verse 2, uh, basically a cemetery. Uh, he has unclean spirit. Look at verse 3. No one could bind him. Man couldn't. The only thing humans could do for this guy is what? Try to bind him up. Okay, try to bound him. Try to keep him kind of sedated, if you will. Not even with chains, because he had often been bound with chains shackles and chains and he he broke them he and nobody could tame him like an animal and day and night he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones what can you tell me about this guy just from that description huh he's oh he's strong perhaps demonic power i mean we know he's demon so demonic powers can actually give physical strength to people uh, there's actually, we won't get into that. What else? He's isolated. What else? He's, he's alone. He has no peace. How do you think he's sleeping? It says night and day. He's not in community. Okay? He has no future. He has no hope. Humans cannot help him. All they can do is chain him up. He's self-destructive. He's kind of, I mean, these... These attributes can apply to people today. Self-destructed habits, alone, estranged from community, no hope. Man, maybe the best man can do to him is keep giving him more drugs to try to sedate him and just keep him calmed down. See, all of these things. Only one that can help him is God, basically. But notice Jesus comes to this last, the least, and the lowliest. 
on the social register. And if you notice, Jesus makes this whole trip over from that side to the other side through a storm to reach how many people? Because later on in this verse, it's going to say he gets back in the boat and he goes back over. What does that tell you about God? He cares about the individual. And Jesus went through a dark night and suffering and a storm of ridicule and rejection. It came, and who did he find living in darkness, dead in our trespasses and sins in the cemetery field, hopeless, some of us more so than others, and he reached us and commissions us, and then he goes back up, back where he came from. It's a message for you and me. I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but it says here, then it, Jesus, we know what happens, he casts them out, and that's when you see all the pigs that run over the mountainside. And again, this is John 10, 10, where it says the enemy comes to do what? Rob, kill, and destroy. That was their thing, to destroy this man, but now they're going to destroy what? The pigs, the host, whatever physical host they can get into. They want to be in something. You know, and then they jump over this cliff, and they, that's their intent, is to kill. And then, of course, it says here, um, I, I really like this, it says in verse uh, thir uh, 15, And when they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed, it had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. What does sitting suggest? He's at peace. He's got rest, repose. He's tranquil, Okay. He's, he's clothed, which what means what? He's, he's appropriate now. He's clothed. And of course, we know we're clothed, uh, not with filthy rags. Uh, study clothing in the Old Testament, starting with Adam and Eve, but it's very interesting. But at the end of the age, we're actually clothed in white robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So he's rightly clothed here. And then it says he's in his right mind. Very important point. It, he's, he, everything changes. Again, Christianity is different than all other religions in many aspects, but one is all the others give information. And some of it is not bad. Some of it's pretty inspirational, how to treat others, and whether it's Buddhism or Islam. But the whole message of Christianity is not information only, it's transformational. This guy did not need 12 steps how to be a better you in three weeks. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't, you know, how to have a positive attitude or something. He needed transformation. He needed a brand new life. That's what Jesus gives. Everything Jesus does is transformational. Water to wine, death to hearing, storm to calm, dead to life. Everything's transformational, transformational. So now this man, and he's in his right mind, and it, everybody's kind of flipping out because they don't know what happened to this guy. And it says here in verse 19, he says, he, but it says he begs him that he might follow him. This is somebody that's really been an encounter with Jesus. They want to follow him. That, that's a real mark, I think, of, of, of conversion, the new, the new birth. You want to follow him. And Jesus says to him, go home to your friends and tell them two things. What great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion. Go tell them about God's power and go tell them about God's love. This man not only goes and joins community, he's got a message. His life has a purpose. It has direction. Everything, you know, can you imagine him going into the town, into the marketplace? <laughs> you know, it must have been something. But that's the power, you know, of a transformed life. And again, it's fulfilling Isaiah chapter 9. He was in darkness, the shadow of death, 
Galilee of the Gentiles. Do you see all of this stuff is kind of fleshed out in the Gospels? Yes, please. Yeah, he's who else was a Gentile that goes in and brings half the town out to meet Jesus? The woman at the well. Uh, you know, it's very interesting how this, but again, uh, this is kind of back to Isaiah 6. It kind of shows us uh, how some of these things work out here. And it says, um, back in Isaiah now, chapter 9, verse 6, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you. That's where that guy was, that Gentile. Can you imagine this whole new life he has? According to the joy of the harvest, he's going to list three things here that when people have great joy. The joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. In other words, the joy of the harvest, you know you're in countries, uh, again in Asia, when the harvest came, it was like a time of great celebration. As a matter of fact, that's when many of the young people get engaged. Because they've got the harvest, they're going to have profit, people are out in the fields, they have these festivals, it's a great, uh, but when you're in the sowing phase of the harvest, it's very difficult. You know, you, you're, you're cutting, you're scratching the earth and you're plowing and, and, and planting seeds. He says, there's joy there. And then it says, as when they re rejoice when they divide the spoil, you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff off his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. And this harkens back to the time of Gideon. Remember, they defeat the Midianites. So one thing, you have great joy at the harvest. The other, you have great joy in, in uh, victory in war. Verse 5, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of the fire. So he's saying, like in the harvest time, there's great celebration. But there's also celebration in military victory. When the victory, think of uh, victory in Europe Day or the parades down in New York City. Just everybody's out there dancing, you know. That's kind of when this great light comes. It's that kind of joyful exuberance. You know, he's, he's brought us joy. We were in gloom. He's come. Light has now come. And he uses these kind of uh, idioms. Uh, and again, Isaiah is extremely poetic. Uh, some people call him the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. His, his, his metaphors, his poetic language, the way he couples verses together, we'll see that as we go along. And so now we're into it. And here comes this famous verse, uh, verse 6, where he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And of course, this is one of those famous prophecies of the Messiah, 720 years before his coming. And he'll say, For unto us a child is born. That speaks of the humanity of Jesus. He's a he, he, this is his incarnation. But unto us a son is given. See, in sonship, he's eternal, okay? You know, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning. Before Abraham was, I am, yes? But in his, in his incarnation, he enters into space and time for that limit. He is a child that's born, but he is a son that's given. For God so loved the world that he gave us his love. He's with the Father in all eternity. Do you, you understand? And this is where people, even today, mix things up. You know, because they, they, they don't fully understand his deity or his humanity or the blending of the two. You see how, the, how the, he's the God-man. Matt spoke to it a little bit in the sermon this morning. You know, and, and if they confuse it, they get things mixed up. And this is true. I go, oh, 
Sometimes I have to watch them. But uh, this is a good place. With Muslims, because they mix up his, his deity and his uh, humanity. Because they said, well, it says in the Old Testament that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. And you just read in the book of Mark where he's sleeping in the boat. Well, yeah, in his humanity, he's sleeping in the boat, but in his deity, what's he doing? Calming the storm and the end of the waves? Yes, yeah. You know, uh, in, in, his, in his humanity, he says on the cross, I thirst. But in John chapter 7, he says, anyone that's thirsty, let him come unto me and I'll give you wells of living water. That's deity. You understand? So people often uh, confuse. If you don't rightly divide the word of truth, they, they tend to fall on this side of the horse. When they jump back up, they fall on this side of the horse. You've got to kind of rightly balance this thing. Any thoughts on that? It's a very important point in the day and age we live because these are attack points. Yes, please. I walked across the uh, Catholic friends. They used to have a No, I, you bring up a good point. Right. I mean, again, Jesus has no, in sonship, he's eternal. I mean, when you go to the Nicene Creed or any of the basic creeds about the Trinity, he's fully God, you know, that, that, and he doesn't have a beginning. It's, it's well taken with your point. Yes, please. Kim. That's it. And that unity in that core, and that, that, that just goes so deeply into our, in, into the structure of the universe. But it, it, it's counterintuitive to us. We absolutely resist. Yeah, be, yeah, that's a good point. Because look, bottom line, we're finite beings. We have a finite mind. We're trying to apprehend an infinite God that has revealed himself in, in the, through the Holy Spirit in the pages of Scripture. So. Because we don't fully understand everything does not make it not true. You see, we have to leave room for mystery. And the fact that, it, I mean, Jesus is the Alpha, he's the Omega. He's the Lamb of God, but he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes as a humble servant, he says, but he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is not only priest, but he's sacrifice. You see, he's the temple. He's, he's, it, everything about him is, in a sense, paradoxical, but once you understand it, I mean, actually start to grasp it, not that we ever fully will, it, it starts, you see that when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying to his Father. In persons, they're distinct. They're distinct. One God uh, eternally coexisted in three equal persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, because we can't fully understand all of this does not make it not true. As my old preacher friend used to say, I don't know how a brown cow eats green grass and gives white milk, but I like vanilla milkshakes. You know, I don't understand all the mysteries of the ages, but C.S. Lewis says, if we were inventing a religion, we could make it simpler. But this thing has the touch of the divine because it reveals mysteries that maybe we don't fully understand, maybe never will, but in perhaps in eternity, in eons to come, more God reveals more and more of these kinds of things to us what they call the mysterium tremendum, the, the tremendous mystery of life and universe and attributes of God. 
Somebody else had their hand. Okay, so here we see, for unto us a child is born, uh, uh, unto us a son is given. The very, very important point. Uh, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And here we see this whole idea. He, they're always looking for this son of David. They know when the Messiah comes, he will come uh, from the, the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. That's why even the blind man, blind Bartimaeus, and these guys will say, Oh, son of David, have mercy on me. They knew when Messiah come, he would be the son of David. Do you understand this, this, this truth? And so uh, it says here, the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, whether it, some divide these two or not, Wonderful Counselor, a mighty God. And here we see uh, these uh, name attributes to him. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, does anybody have a different translation for that title? Wonderful, awe-inspiring, um, in him, what is it? Supernatural, yeah, it's this idea of wonder that you don't fully, you know, uh, you know fully grasp everything, it's so wonderful. Um, and it says, counselor, and of course Jesus is the counselor. You know, his words still speak to us today. He is, in him, it says in Colossians, are all the riches of the wisdom of God are contained where in, in, in Jesus Christ. And he's called the mighty God. And, uh, you know, this is kind of cute, but uh, I, I had some Jehovah Witness come to my house once, and they go, see, mighty God. It's not saying almighty God. But no, mighty God is, is a title of God. And they said, no, look. I says, all right, let me ask you, you give me your Bible, their little New World Translation, whatever. I said, um, look at the next chapter. Uh, they said, okay. And I says, uh, look at verse 20, where it says, uh, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, etc., but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Verse 21, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to what? The mighty God. Same, I said, you know, you got to kind of walk along in a nice way, but I said, <laughs> That, that, that titling that's used for God in chapter 9 is the same title that's used for God in chapter 10, verse 21. You understand? So you got to, as we share the word, yes, Joyce? Well, the passage, a little bit louder. Tell us about what? Yeah, I think, now remember, God is singular, but so all, in a sense, share in the attributes that we see in God the Father, too. There's distinction. But this is attributed to, um, applied to this child that's born, to this son that's given. The term everlasting father, in, in terms of application to Jesus, would be, he's a father, he, he's a eternal father of time, if you will. He had, He's the ancient of days. Well, God is ascribed to be the ancient, but Jesus too has the, uh, is eternal. He, he's, uh, I don't want to say, yeah, he starts time, but he's before time. He's out of time. Does that make sense? So you could, it, it is interesting, you could probably apply these to the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, but I think here it's applying to this coming one that Isaiah kind of harps on. But we will find places of the Trinity, definitely, uh, in the book of Isaiah. 
Right. Well, don't forget the father, the, the father, you know when we say father time, or do we use that expression? What, 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 it, what it's shown here that he is eternal. You know, how can I say this? He, uh, uh, he has no beginning, no end. He's the, he comes before. I mean, he actually creates time. Who created space and time? Let me ask you that. Who? Who's the creator? Jesus. Am I right? So that means he creates time and space. Yeah. So do you see how he could be the father of time, but that does not diminish his sonship and his relationship to the father? It's, I know it's kind of difficult in, you know, to, to apprehend some of these principles, but that it, the idea of being, he, he, he is the creator. God initiates, but it says all things were created by him in Colossians. By who? By Jesus. Okay, does that make sense? You know. Well, yeah, again, if we, and maybe we'll get into a discussion of the Trinity. I'm sure we can fit that in here somewhere. But once you see how the Godhead works, I mean, who, how was Jesus raised from the dead? What part of the Godhead? What, what person? Holy Spirit. Father. The Son. Jesus says, I have the power to lay my life down and take it up again. The book of Acts says, God raised him from the dead. But then in Romans chapter 8 it says that the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. So you see the three. You see the three in creation. You know, let us make man in our image. So, uh, or in the judgment of Babel, let us go down and see what man has done himself into now. So you got to like hold these things in a certain amount of tension, if I can say that. It, it, we may not fully understand it, but the Word of God fully proclaims it. It's funny, you know, I was talking to an atheist friend, and he believed in the Big Bang. Yeah, everything came I go, I do too. He goes, you do? I go, yeah. God spoke it, and bang, everything came out. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, you, you've got to have fun with this stuff. I mean, you've got to, we've got good news, you know. And people in the world today, believe it or not, they're looking for good news. Now, we cannot diminish the bad news that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and, and you know, flee the wrath to come. But I do think when we share, we should share with a sense of uh, concern, but joyfulness. I think we have to learn how to speak the truth in love. Uh, you know, Paul says, I become all things to all men that I might win some to the Lord. We have to learn to be winsome. Okay, <laughs> you know what I'm getting at is don't get me on a roll here. But I mean, true. If you Google up one of the biggest criticisms of Christianity or Christian, you Google it up. What are some of the things that people will say? Judgmental, critical, hypocrite, harsh. Well, I think we should listen to those words. Not that they're all true, but I think we should listen to them because what? Sometimes we can be Pharisaical. We can be self-righteous. I mean, we're just what it is. We have a tendency to point out others' sins. That's, that's problematic. We are called to be lights of the world, okay? As an old friend used to tell me, he said, John, you have to learn how to glow and not glare. You have to learn how to glow and not glare. Because otherwise, all people will hear is a harsh message. 
And I don't mean harshness shouldn't be there. I think we cannot minimize the truth of God's word, but I do think we have to know how we present it. Yes, please. Just a little bit louder, please. When we're looking or talking to unbelievers, another way to look at this is are we pointing people more toward the Christ, toward the cross, or away from the Yeah. Yeah. I think most people, if, once you really talk to them, they, they'll, they will admit something's wrong with their life. I mean, they, they, things are out of sort whatever it might be, they lack purpose or direction. I think we live actually in a very spiritual time, uh, and, but where people are going to try to get those spiritual needs satisfied or answered is the problem. You see, that, that's what I think. We as believers can help provide that bridge. That's why really, if you study Jesus or Paul, they were very rarely harsh on sinners. Even Paul, when he goes into these pagan places like Mars Hill and stuff like that, he's not. Um, but he wants to present the truth to them. He doesn't minimize the truth, but he's looking for places to start conversation and connect. And, and rather, I think they knew their, kind of their sins, their pagan idolatry and all this kind of stuff. But he says, I preach Christ and him crucified. He's, he's, he's not telling what he's against. He's telling what he's for. Does that make sense? If we just say, oh, you know, my nephew or my friend, he's... He drinks too much, or he smokes dope, or he pornography. Yeah, those never be surprised when a sinner acts like a sinner. You know, that's what they do. But if we point to that, how is that helping them? Can we point to an end? You know, before I came to Christ at age 27, I understood I was a sinner. You know, these people, Jesus people, were walking me through the Roman road. And they go, do you believe this, John, that all is sin and come short of the good? You're, you, I go, check. I got that worked out. Now, <laughs> help me to understand how I get things right. And that's how they walk me along. But it's, you know, Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Right? When do you clean a fish? After you catch it. Okay? <laughs> after, you, after somebody becomes a believer, I think we have to introduce the epistles and show them from salvation to sanctification. Now how do we live? And that's when you, Paul gets hard. He says, put off the old man, put on the new man, don't do this. You know, that's when it gets... But if you take that up front, it's often difficult for people to enter in. That's been my experience. Yes, Mike. I think one of the challenges we have, John, is, is at least I know personally, is you want to be you know, further along in that sanctification process so that you feel comfortable you know, witnessing and discipling or else you feel like a hypocrite. But you know, if you really think about it, and you keep reading uh, you know, My Utmost for His Highest, which is pretty conflicting, and, uh, you know, every time you see it, every time you read it, you realize, well, that's not me. I'm not there yet. So then you feel almost not worthy of taking on that discipleship responsibility, which, you know, if we wait to become perfect, it'll never happen. Right. So we have to kind of work through that personally to avoid our own hypocrisy in what we know is we're not there yet, but we still got to try. Yeah, I think you're right, Mike. I mean, do you think that this demon-possessed man, after he got delivered, and in his right mind, he, he felt like he was, had it all together to go back into that town and start sharing that message Jesus gave him to share? Probably not. You know, I don't know if we ever arrive where we feel uh, fully confident. But you have your story, Mike, you see? You have your story. That's, our testimonies are extremely powerful. And we should really use 
simply tell people what happened to you. We, we should never minimize our story. Like the blind man in John chapter 9, when he said, they're asking him what happened, how did this happen? He says, all I know is, once I was blind, and now I see. That was the famous one John Newton says. He made amazing good. Yeah. Somebody. Uh, I was just going to say on the, uh, the story of the woman at the well, I just love that story so much because it's so personal. He knew Jesus knew exactly the time she could be born again, one on one. And then he knew all about her. He knew that she would be there at the highest time of you know, noon when the sun was the highest. Nobody else was getting the water then. Yeah. Yeah. And she was a Samaritan. You know, she was a woman. There was all these reasons why he shouldn't necessarily be in a rabbi in this. But what's interesting about that story, she beats Jesus and she runs into town and brings out half the men. I have a t I think she might have been attractive. I don't know. But she does say all the women. But anyhow, it, 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 the apostles also went into town. Now, they had been with Jesus and heard his teaching and saw his miracles. It's in uh, John chapter 4. But what did they bring out of the town? Just food. Their own interest. You see, she left the water pot. That was what was, she was interested in that day was get that water pot filled. But she saw a higher value to go bring out these people that had souls that had to meet Jesus that day. The apostles didn't. They didn't say in the marketplace, hey, you really ought to come out. See this fellow, you, you got to see he does mirror. See, that's a lesson to all of us as, in our, as we grow in the Lord. Sometimes we get a little bit too sophisticated. We don't share as much as we should, as we once did. Study the Gospels. Time and again, Jesus will tell somebody he heals what? Don't tell anyone. And what do they do? They go tell everyone. I mean, Jesus has to leave that town because he doesn't want to get mobbed at that particular time. Jesus has told us to do what? Go tell everyone. And what might we do? Okay. I'm just saying. Okay. Uh, okay, I want to end it up here. Okay, so verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. And this is, this is very, very important because, um, again, this kingly, when you think kingdom, you think king, uh, that's a very important thing to remember as we understand the Gospels and how it applies to our life today. When we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Now, yeah, that's future, but it also has present application. Is that kingdom coming in my life now? Thy will be done. Is, is his will being done in my life, or am I operating on my will? You see what I'm saying? Am I really seeking God's kingdom in my life, in my family? And uh, this was hit home to me. Because me and my family lived in a country that was under uh, was a monarchy. Thailand, previously called Siam, remember the king and I, but even though it's a parliamentary, whatever they call it now, but it was ruled by a king. They loved this king. He died three years ago. But, you know, he was like the father figure. Father's Day was the king's birthday. But they all related to the king. That's what we have to do is relate to our king and seek to do those things that please our king. Do you understand? This whole... We, we should really understand kingdom more and more. We'll talk about that as we get to the book of Isaiah. And then it says, um, His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and of course, Prince of Peace. Uh, that's the message the world desperately needs today. It needed it back then. Of course, these, the southern and the northern kingdom were going to see war and oppression and all this stuff. <laughs> Nothing has really changed, so to speak. 
but one day uh, he's coming back, and that's when he says, uh, uh, the plowshares, you know, the swords will be hammered into plowshares and they'll learn war no more. And then it finally says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David, uh, and over his kingdom, and here's this uh, eternal kingdom uh, that's displayed here. I don't have a, uh, just by way of reference, there's Capernaum today, you go there, it's called uh, the town of Jesus. This synagogue here is second century, but these stones here is the synagogue Jesus went into when he delivered the, the, the demoniac. Capernaum, there is the modern day, if you go there, this, they actually believe this is Peter's house. It's like a museum now, but even secular archaeologists believe there's a lot of evidence that there's a synagogue here that Jesus taught in, uh, the remnants of it. This was the coastline today, but here's an artist's rendition. This was an extremely uh, populated uh, place. We know that because a centurion lived there, which means there was many Roman soldiers. Matthew was there. He was a tax collector. This was a big-time route that came from the north. Damascus and all that would come here, and then they would wingle their way towards the Mediterranean. Uh, but that gives you an idea of Capernaum. But we'll pick this up next time, not next week, but the week after, and we'll get back into these titles of Jesus, the Messiah. And then, he, then he, Isaiah switches gear, and he starts with these warnings and the impending judgment to come. Any closing thoughts on any of this before we close in a word for us? Um, Isaiah, to me, is just, it's the Rosetta Stone of the Old Testament. It just, you look at it from all these different angles, and it has so much application, I think, to our life today. Okay. Mike, would you close us in a word of prayer? Thank you. Let us pray.